Welcome to the On The Edge Podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, hello, hello, hello. It's Scott Groves with the On The Edge Podcast. Uh, It's evening, so uh, I'm smoking something a little bit darker and uh, drinking something a little bit lighter. And I guess we'll just start start off here because we're probably going to be doing a lot of screen share. I've been getting a lot of questions about, hey, what are you smoking? What are you drinking during the shows? So tonight I'm smoking this cigar, which I actually had to look up, which is why I have it here on the screen. It's the uh, Davidoff Yamasa. Yamasa, I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. I had to look up where it came from. I thought it was actually Nicaraguan, uh, but then when I looked it up, turns out that it's actually from the Dominican Republic and from the Yamasa Valley, which apparently was a pain in the ass to grow cigars in for 20 years, but Davidoff figured it out. And this is a really dark wrapper, like really, really bold cigar and tastes amazing. Like if there weren't such high taxes in California, this would be my daily smoker because in California, a 10 or $12 cigar, which is what this probably should be, turns into a $24 cigar because you effectively get taxed at 100% here in California. So I don't smoke these all the time, but for, you know, under 30 bucks, like it's a really, really good smoke. So uh, highly recommend the Davidoff. Uh, don't worry, we're going to get all into Caitlyn Jenner and minimum wage versus the living wage and uh, why cigarettes are going to kill more people, but not in the way that you think it is. Uh, and then we're also drinking, I got to give a shout out to my friend and coaching client, Dapper Dave. He sent me a bottle of this blonde whiskey, blonde whiskey from a uh, distillery out in Asheville, North Carolina which ironically I've been to a couple times because our corporate office for my main job is out there in North Carolina, well, now South Carolina. So I'm drinking this uh, this blonde whiskey, a kinder spirit. And apparently, Chris was looking it up before we got started, actually um, uh, curated and brewed by a female distillery owner, which seemed interesting to him. So we're going to try it here for the first time. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good, and it's definitely lighter, Chris. The The first whiff that I took out of the bottle when I opened it hit me a little hard. I thought this was going to be really strong, but damn, this is good. This might be a two- or three-glass uh, drink tonight. So, yep, uh, Davidoff Yamamasa, Yamasa, sorry, Yamasa cigar and uh, this blonde whiskey. And let's just get right into it. Uh, Chris, I'm guessing we can show political clips, right, because we, we, can, we can show them and then comment on them? Yeah, as long as it uh, promotes discussion or something okay cool so there's no as long as there's no copyrighted music we're okay yeah so let's just get into the crazy world that we live here in los angeles where the early front runner for governor is uh caitlin jenner and let's just watch her ad famed olympic gold medalist caitlin jenner is i've always been a dreamer california was once the envy of the world We had what everyone else wanted. The American dream grew up here. Yet career politicians and their policies have destroyed that dream. It's been locked away, closed, shuttered, left in the dark, burned down. The government is now involved in every part of our lives. They've taken our money, our jobs, and our freedom. California needs a disruptor, a compassionate disruptor. I came here with a dream 48 years ago to be the greatest athlete in the world. Now I enter a different kind of race, arguably my most important one yet, to save California. I want to carry the torch for the parents who had to balance work and their child's education. 
for business owners who were forced to shut down, for pastors who were not able to be with their congregation, for the family who lost their home in a fire, for an entire generation of students who lost a year of education. This past year has redefined our career politicians as elitists and the people of California as the warriors, the kings, and the angels. We never take kindly to glass ceilings here. Instead, we shatter them. This one's way out there. We're the trailblazers, the innovators. California is facing big hurdles. Now, we need leaders who are unafraid to leap to new heights. Canada, he does not want to finish record in this race. He wants the world record. Who are unafraid to challenge and to change the status quo. I want to prove that it is absolutely possible if we only do it together. California, it's time to reopen our schools, reopen our businesses, reopen the Golden Gates. So I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat, I'm running to be governor for all Californians. To reclaim our true identity, to bring back the gold to the Golden State. What a tremendous victory! Now is the time to achieve that summit, to be the shining city on the hill, and together, will restore and renew the California dream. It's about what happens from here. It's not just about one person. It's about all of us. So there's a couple things that's that's really fascinating about that ad. Um, one is, let's put aside uh, Caitlyn Jenner's sexuality for a minute. One is that ad effectively could have been called, you know, Make California Great Again. Uh, for those of you that aren't familiar, Caitlyn Jenner, previously Bruce Jenner, transvestite female is what I would say, Chris, right? Because he, he transitioned to a she? Transgender. Transgender female. Trans that's okay. Transgender female, um, Caitlyn Jenner, previously Bruce Jenner. Uh, it ran is running an ad and running kind of a callback to more, I would say, somewhat conservative values in uh, in California. You know, mentioned being able to go to church, mentioned a lot of pro business stuff, uh, mentioned how the supermajority of Democrats in uh, in in our state assembly and our state legislature, state uh, senate senatorial group, uh, I'll, I forget what they they're called. There too, we also have a similar. Uh, by is it called by camel? Is that what it is when you have a, a senator and a legislator? I think so. Um, anyway, we have we have two houses in our state uh, legislator, very similar to the federal government, and the Democrats have, have had a supermajority for at least a decade, and they've had a majority for a couple decades now, and they currently have the trifecta, which is they have the governorship, the state legislator, and the state senate. And, you know, Caitlin's basically poking fun of all that, that saying, you know, uh, hey, it's a real problem. Uh, Democrats have had their way for 10, 20, almost 30 years now with a couple caveats in there of Republican governors. And uh, it's a real problem. Like the state is much, 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 much worse off than it was 10 years ago. Deficits are higher. Homelessness is higher. Crime is higher. Um, uh, overall tax revenue is down. There's been an exodus of wealthy people from the state. There's a real problem. And so it's kind of crazy to me the juxtaposition of a transgender female running on a more conservative message in the most socially liberal state 
in the union in California. Like the whole thing is just kind of blowing my mind. And uh, my hope is that this is not some type of just publicity stunt by Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, Caitlyn Jenner in his youth was Bruce Jenner and the most fit person in the world, won the decathlon in the Olympics, uh, went on to be successful businessman, uh, went on to be part of the Kardashian families, which I don't know if that's a net positive or net negative, and then, you know, came to feel that uh, he was more at home as a she and transitioned and now has a really good shot at being the first transgender governor. And for those of you that aren't in California, the way that this works is Gavin Newsom is fucked up so bad that the state of California collected 2 million signatures. And there's this weird percentage of total voters from the last election. So it ended up being like a million four hundred twenty-three thousand voters had to sign saying that they were interested in a recall. So we will have a special election coming up here in a few months where there will be a recall. So I will go into vote and the first thing on the ballot will say, do you or do you not want to recall Governor Newsom? Chances are enough people will say yes, they want to recall get, uh, Governor Newsom. And then below that, it will say, okay, here's the 100 people you can vote for for governor uh, because it takes about $4,000 and a couple thousand signatures to get on the ticket as a governor in a gubernatorial gubernatorial election in um in los angeles or in uh, california so there will be you know there'll be some porn stars on there there'll be some legitimate politicians there'll be some businessmen and women but so far the one getting the most buzz is caitlin jenner and uh so gavin newsom will probably be uh recalled and uh thrown out of his governor's mansion and then we will have the chance to vote for the next governor so it should be a wild ride here over the next couple months and, you know, I like what I saw in this ad. So, again, I hope this isn't just some type of uh, publicity stunt by the Jenner slash uh, Kardashian media monster that has become uh, what they are. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I think, I think there's a big challenge coming in California for establishment Democrats because, you know, I looked up some of these numbers, and let's go through these real quick. Uh, so here is the current... California State Assembly, that's kind of like our uh, House of Representatives or uh, in, in the federal government version. Yeah. So uh, here we go. California State Assembly is the lower chamber of the California state legislator. So state legislator is uh, separated into the assembly and the Senate. And you can see here party control in California. Democrats have uh, 58 members of the state legislator and there's 19 Republicans, one independent, two current vacancies. I think those vacancies are there actually because these two people took cabinet positions in the Biden administration. I think that's why we have um, vacancies. So there would actually be 60 Democrats, 19 Republicans, and one independent, which means clearly, because we have a very similar state constitution to the federal constitution, Democrats have a supermajority in the uh, legislator and also in the Senate. So if you go to the Senate, uh, the California State Senate, Democratic Party has 31 seats, Republicans have nine, so the Democrats have a supermajority there, and they have the current governorship. So anything that Democrats want to pass in California gets passed because they have a supermajority. There is, there, is no, there is no opposition force that can stop them. And what we've seen, I think this even breaks it down here, how long, um, yeah, so how long... Uh, Democrats have controlled the state Senate going back to 1992 or further. This is as far back as this goes. And they've had a supermajority since 2012-ish. Uh, same with the legislator. Uh, Democrats have controlled since 1996 election. And they've had a supermajority 
since about, yeah, again, 2012, 2014. So there's nothing anybody in the state of California can do to stop any, you know, left-leaning policy proposed at the state level. And I, I don't think it's a big surprise when you have super majority one state rule for, depending on how you look at this, somewhere between eight years and, you know, going on 25 years of control of the state legislator and the state Senate, uh, it's a real problem, right? Because you have no checks and balances in the state. And you can look around and you can just see the absolute waste of money in our homelessness policy and our social help policies. It's just more and more taxation, more and more spending with fewer and fewer results. And you can go down the list. I've got a laundry list of stuff, whether it's on the educational front, the homeless front, the infrastructure front. It's just we are paying now as Californians the highest combined taxes when you combine property tax, sales tax, income tax. California pays the most to get some of the least and just have massive, massive ongoing problems as we're alienating the people in the state that make the most money. And so the tax base, the tax base, forget about the tax rate, but the actual tax base is going down. So who knows? Maybe Caitlyn Jenner um, with her crazy life story and maybe the ability to attract some uh, Democratic votes and some some people from the left due to her intersectionality of where she falls on, you know, trans, gay, social status, black, white, all, all the things that we hear about endlessly now in the media. Maybe she checks enough of those boxes um, on the social front to garner some votes for them left. And if she has a more centrist or conservative message, maybe she gets the votes on the right because contrary to popular belief, I know a lot of Republicans and a lot of libertarians in California and none of them actually give a shit if you're gay or you're trans or you're black or you're pro pro-life, pro-choice, or you're a midget, like people here are much more accepting than I think the media would have you believe. So I think if her message is a little bit more on point, centered, and conservative, she can pick up those votes. And I think she can get, because of her name recognition, another important group of votes. And because she would be the first uh, op- first transgender uh, individual woman, sorry, I'm going to get this wrong, uh, first transgender woman to uh, serve in a major office, um, you know, maybe maybe she's gonna maybe she's gonna bring it home, make the state better. I hope she is because the current trajectory of the state of California is a real shit show. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, more to follow. Um, I'm acquaintances. I wouldn't say friends. I'm acquaintances with Dave Rubin, and I know he's been trying hard to get Caitlin on his podcast. So maybe she'll sit down with him for an hour or two and kind of give her ideas and directions for the state. That would be awesome. There was an economics release, jobs opening, jobs report that uh, just came out on Tuesday, and the jobs report was was underwhelming. A uh, lot of uh, financial analysts and political talking heads thought there was going to be a million jobs added. By the time it was revised and all kinds of shenanigans that goes on with the jobs report, there was only 260,000 jobs added, which I'm not a political hack who's going to say that that's Biden's fault or Trump's fault or whatnot, because I think the president has a little bit less to do with the economy than we all want to believe that he does. But at the end of the day, what I thought was actually more interesting than the jobs reports, did we add a million jobs or 233,000 jobs or did we lose 100,000 jobs or whatever the case may be, what I thought was more interesting was the number of job openings, right? And it's, it's at the very top of the report here. And uh, for those of you that are maybe following along or watching this, I always try to go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics because I think one of the biggest problems with America right now is that even though you, thank you, Google, can go to the source material of basically anything you want to have an opinion on, 
what most people go to is the editorial of a commentator of a report that was an editorial on the actual publication, right? I don't want to read somebody else's opinion of an opinion of an opinion of a report if I can just go directly to the report, right? When somebody's commenting on the Georgia voters law, I don't want to get the talking points from Ben Shapiro on the right or Rachel Maddow on the left. I just want to go to the bill. Actually, let's, well, we'll look that up later. Well, you can just go to the bill and read it yourself. I think the Georgia voter bill, which, you know, Democrats are are comparing to Jim Crow laws, not accurate. Um, and Republicans are comparing to just kind of normal course of business, not accurate. Obviously, they're bitter that they lost uh, in Georgia, which, uh, which was a big deal in the election. Uh, but you can just, it doesn't matter. You can just go to the bill and read it yourself. So I always try to go to a government website to look at the actual press release or the actual numbers. There are a couple other sites I'm going to show you here as we scroll through that I trust. But guys, if you're hearing something about, for example, when Trump incited the riot, right? Or he didn't incite the riot, depending on what talking heads you're talking, you're, you're listening to. Don't, again, don't listen to Ben Shapiro's opinion or Rachel Maddow's opinion, because you're just going to hear information that comes from that echo chamber. Go on YouTube and watch the whole 12 minute clip of the speech and you make your own opinion, right? I'm always shocked how many people have these extremely strong opinions of things and they haven't viewed the source material. As a matter of fact, somewhere behind me here, um, I think I've got the book I'm listening to it in audio. I'm listening to it on audiobook, but I, I also think I bought the hardcover of How to Be a Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And uh, not a book I was particularly interested in, but so many of the talking points right now from progressives are coming from that book. I'm like, well, instead of reading somebody's opinion of that book or editorialized um, review of that book, why don't I just go read the book, right? Go to the source material. We probably all learned that in junior college history 101 uh, to read some of the source material, right? Read the Federalist Papers, read letters back and forth between people that ended up becoming our presidents. Anyway, I digress. So going here to this uh, jobs opening and labor turnover, the jobs opening is the most interesting thing to me is basically in 2020, depending on what statistics you look at, and again, I try to go to the Bureau of Labor, the U.S. lost about 20 million jobs in 2020. And they register that by people that left their job in a manner where they were eligible for unemployment. So that 20 million jobs does not tell the whole story of people who were underemployed or were maybe laid off but weren't working in a job where they were eligible for unemployment. Then again, last year for the first time, I think ever, unemployment was available to people who were self-employed. So if you were like a realtor, but you couldn't drum up any business because there was no open houses, because the market was shut down due to COVID, you could go on unemployment. So that 20 million number is probably actually more accurate than we think it is. But I digress. About 20 million jobs were lost last year. Between, depending on whether or not you're Florida and you reopened over the summer or you're California and you might completely reopen one day in 2024, depending on when the states decided to reopen, we've gained back about 12 million of those jobs. But right here, this is a really dangerous number in my opinion. The number of job, option, uh, job openings edged up to 7.4 million jobs. So we lost 20 million, about <coughs> excuse me, about 12 million have been rehired over the last 60 days to six months. But 7.4 million jobs are still currently on the market. There's, there's job openings that cannot be filled. And Chris, maybe you could Google real quick what the current uh, unemployment rate is. Uh, and the unemployment rate is usually expressed as a uh, percentage number, but you can also get like the raw numbers. Like unemployment currently is 
6.7%, which means there's 10 million dollar 10 million people seeking jobs. Maybe we can look that up real quick. Uh and and here's where I can't stand the government. It says 9%. 9%. Okay. Uh see if you can find out what that number is. Does 9% represent like 10 million people looking for a job or does it represent 100,000 people looking for a job? You can interrupt me whenever you get to it. But, you know, here is the thing about we're here from the government, we're here to help. Fa- famous last words. Fa- famous last thing you want to hear. One of the byproducts of having an aggressive, aggressive social safety net and all the bailout money and the stimulus money is people respond to incentives, right? People respond to incentives. That's just how the human brain works. That's how society works. And if your social safety net programs become so aggressive that you're paying people more to stay at home and not work, then return to work, well, this is exactly what you're gonna have. You're gonna have 7.5 million people that that could be filling jobs. There's seven or 7.4 million jobs that need to be filled. There's jobs openings on the market and they can't get people to fill it. So it says there's a total of 1.6 million people unemployed with a total number of jobs available at 15.8 million. Yeah. Okay, so there's a lot more jobs available than there are people unemployed. Think about that. Unemployment at 9%. No, no, no. There's there's 15.8 million payroll people working right now in California. Okay. And then they say one point, whatever I said, 1.68 million are looking for work. Got it, got it. Okay, cool. So on the national level, that's the state level. On the national level, we've probably got then somewhere around 10 to 20 million people 10 to 15 million people unemployed. See if you can find that, the national number of unemployed people. I, I would guess it's somewhere around 10 million, 10 to 15 million, I would guess, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, the point is, there's a lot of jobs out there, right? But depending on which study you read, and again, who's parsing out the numbers, when you look at unemployment uh, compensation, then you look at it's wavered between $100 and $300 a week, additional unemployment benefits coming out of the bailout money and then you look at the stimulus checks and then you look at the ability to sign up for food stamps and housing assistance you know depending on how many programs people take advantage of it's been estimated that in 2020 because of the increased benefit on unemployment and the stimulus checks staying at home and doing nothing is paying somewhere between 17 and 22 dollars an hour to do nothing And if you look at minimum wage jobs in America or you look at entry-level jobs, especially in the hospitality business and the food service business, it's not uncommon to have those entry-level jobs pay $10 to $12 to $13. So just knowing that human beings respond to incentives, why would you go back to a $12 an hour job if the government is paying you $18 to stay home? Now, I'm not saying there shouldn't be a social safety net at some level. There absolutely should for the the most downtrodden and the people that are in the most need. However, having millions of able-bodied Americans staying out of work and not filling these jobs because they're getting paid more to stay at home is the moral hazard that's created by the government having such an aggressive social safety net. Uh, There's a... 9.8 9.8 million people nationally unemployed at a rate of uh, 6.1%. Okay, so so nationally, there's about 10 million people unemployed, and there's 7.4 million jobs out there. So we could take the unemployment rate down to 2 or 3%, which would 
be the probably the lowest of all time if we could just fill these job openings, which can't be filled right now because the government is paying too many people to stay home. Ugh, frustrating. Don't you think it has something to do with the fact that, I mean, this kind of proves that the government has no idea what people are actually making? Yeah, no, they, they have no they have no clue. And, you know, uh, Chris and I had talked about it, about some friends that we have, where the stimulus checks weren't even means tested. Meaning, let's say, for example, one, they were, they, I take that back, I'm sorry, the government stimulus checks were means tested. You had to make under X amount of dollars uh, in order to get the stimulus check. But, you didn't have to opt into it. So let's take, for example, a couple of examples that I know. Um, married couple, retired, earning Social Security and a pension for some government job, call it teacher, police, sheriffs, whatever. They're making $60,000 a year between them, but their house is paid off. They have money in savings. They really have no debt or overhead. They're very comfortable on their retirement wages of Social Security plus their pension. All of those people, if they made, I think it was under $74,000, maybe you can fact check me on this as well, Chris. Um, I think if you made under $74,000, you just got the $1,400 stimulus check and then you got the other $1,400 stimulus check. And so what we what we could have done just to save hundreds of millions of dollars is had people opt in for that. Because I know a lot of people that got the check that didn't need it. For example, my son, he's 19. He's, uh, he's working at a Whole Foods type uh, grocery store out in Long Island while he's going to college. I'm happy to pay his bills for him. He comes from a upper middle class family where people can financially support him. When he went to go file his taxes for last year, because he made, I don't know, $10,000 working at the grocery store, his tax person said, hey, oh, hey, you weren't in the system because last year was his first job. So you were owed this stimulus check because you made under X amount of dollars. We're going to add it to your tax refund and send you the three stimulus checks you should have got last year because you were working and you made under $74,000. And now he's getting... He can't even opt out of it. He's getting something like $3,600 back in additional tax refund that he doesn't need. The government didn't need to spend that money. I, If he really needed that money, I would give it to him or he would just work more hours or he would limit his expenses. So there's just so much, so many unintended consequences, so much government waste just being pumped out in free money that the government just, at this point, they just don't even know what they're doing, right? And so the next argument that you'll frequently hear from progressives is like, well, this is just a telltale sign that people aren't making a fair um, living wage and everybody's on minimum wage. And why would you go back to some shitty job flipping burgers when you can stay home for a year or 18 months and make 18 bucks an hour living off the government and unemployment? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, because you should. Uh, two, there's a moral hazard of creating people that get comfortable living off the government. And three, I can tell you from experience, sorry, I relight the cigar. I can tell you from experience, from friends and family that I have and people that I have interviewed, and I've interviewed a lot of people over the years for jobs, assistance, marketing, uh, the mortgage business, the coaching business, the podcast. I've interviewed a lot of people. Uh, I've sat on a lot of interview boards. I've interviewed a lot of entry-level people. And the reality is once you leave the job force for about a year, your ability to enter the job force at the same pay rate at which you left goes down dramatically because whether it's conscious or subconscious, business owners are scared to hire people that don't have a recent track record of hard work, right? 
in the course of a year, technology changes. Things just kind of move forward. You guys all know how quickly technology changed. You know, five years ago, nobody was really listening to a podcast. You know, a, a year ago, you were probably using a different CRM or point of sale system or operating system at your work or things get upgraded, things change. The environments get more fast paced, right? Businesses evolve. And so if you take yourself out of the job force, and I don't care if you're flipping burgers or making lattes for minimum wage, when you take yourself out of the job force for a year, um, your chances of re-entering the market go down dramatically at the same spot that you left as far as compensation. I've got a really good friend. Um, he's a legitimate genius, like Mensa genius, uh, degree in statistics and actuarial sciences, like one of the sharpest guys I know. But he took like 10 years off to go play professional poker. And this guy, when I, when I say he's a genius, he's a legit genius. Like he could be a day trading hedge fund manager. He could be an analyst at a big financial firm. Like he's got that, that money brain. But because he took himself out of the job market for 10 years, he's now in his mid-30s, like on his resume, not really qualified uh, for anything. He's like, if, if I walk in my, with my resume, I'm looking for a minimum wage job. Now, granted, that's a totally different kind of anecdotal story. But there's just there's this proof that we have that once you take yourself out of the job market at $10 an hour, $12 an hour, $100,000 a year, it's really hard to re-enter the job market at that same price point. And when, when I hear people mostly progressive say, well, this is just, this is just symptomatic of the fact that like, we, don't pay, pay our we don't pay people a fair living wage and too many people are making minimum wage. Again, I want to go to the numbers, right? And uh, this is one website that I will use. It's called USA Facts. They're a nonpartisan, non-party-affiliated like, think tank. You know, a lot of think tanks, the Cato Institute, the Hoover Institute, uh, the RAND Institute, you know, when, when you pay to have them generate a report or a survey, you they kind of know what you're paying for. They want you to have a certain um, slant on the data. Uh, USA Facts, I've been a big fan of. I feel like their data is just laid out very succinctly. Uh, so I went to USA Facts to get kind of the consolidated facts on minimum wage. And I, I think this is really, really important to understand when, when mostly the Democrats or progressives paint this picture of the millions of people that are living in poverty because they only make minimum wage. And why would you want to go back to a minimum wage? You know, I wanted to look up the data on who actually makes the minimum wage. So first of all, the minimum wage in America, I think, is $7.50 an hour. Uh, yeah, $7.50 an hour. Um, that or seven seven dollars and twenty five cents an hour, seven twenty five an hour. Uh, however, most states, most states, and you can see here, have higher minimum wages. California's thirteen dollars, Nevada's eight dollars, Oregon's twelve dollars. Most states in America have a higher minimum wage than the federal minimum wage. Uh, the highest is uh, Georgia and Wyoming. Uh, per, uh, no, the highest is Wyoming at fifteen dollars an hour. Same in Washington D.C. We could talk about, I don't want to talk about the state minimum wage, let's just talk about the federal minimum wage of 725. And if you go down, you can look at, well, how many people actually earn the minimum wage, right? And for that, I wanted to go directly to the, here we go, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Again, let's go straight to the government sources who collects this number, these numbers. And the most accurate numbers are going to be from 2019 because it takes quite a while to like compile this data. But let's look at the percentage of Americans 
that make minimum wage. And the first thing you have to do when you look at this data is minimum wage is only calculated, well, yeah, it's effectively calculated for people that are working hourly. So I found this stat here, minimum wage, it's about 51% of Americans, 56% of Americans are paid on a hourly rate. So uh, I'll find the data. Just trust me on this one. It was around 51% of people are paid on an hourly rate. That means the other 49% of people that are working that are part of the labor force, they're paid either a salary or they're self-employed and who knows what they're doing with their own wa with their wages. But at the end of the day, uh, yeah, young, young workers get a lot more minimum wage. I really want to see this so that you could occupation. All right, it must be over here. We'll find it. Uh, maybe it's in table one. Okay, so about about 50% of workers are on an hourly pay structure, okay? This shows here, what are the total number of people that are paid on an hourly rate? And this is, if you notice here, this is in the thousands. So let's try to make this bigger. Uh, number of workers in the thousands. So 82 to 89,000. So 82 million people, 82.2 million people are paid on an hourly wage. And they represent between, depending on what study you read, 51 and 56% of all workers. So there's about 160 million workers in America who are participating in the job force, okay? Of the people, total hourly workers, 82,289,000 of them, who make the minimum wage are either at or below the minimum wage. And let me clarify that for you. Either they're at the minimum wage of $7.25 an hour or some states, and, and the federal government allows this, will allow you to pay below the minimum wage. So maybe you only make $5 an hour, but you work in a job where tips are customary and make up the spread. So a lot of waitresses in certain states will make $5 an hour, even though the federal minimum wage is $7.25, but they'll make another on average 10 or $12 in reported tips that then takes their wages well above uh, the minimum wage. But of all the hourly workers, all 82 million that are in here, there are 1.9%, 1.9% of hourly workers who make either the minimum wage or below the minimum wage. And even that's a little deceptive because again, the people making below the minimum wage might have total compensation significantly higher than the minimum wage because of the fact that they have tip income, which isn't calculated in here. So uh, Chris, if we take, uh, if we just take 83 million times 1.9%, 83 million times 1.9%, what is that like? Uh, 1.6, 1, 1, people or so, 1,590,000. million what? Uh, so take 82,300,000 times 1.9%. Let's just make sure we get the numbers right. 1.9. Yeah, it's going to be right around uh, 1.6 million people or something like that. Yeah, 1,563,700. Okay, so in all of America, there's about a million five, million six people making minimum wage, um, which, you know, if you're a progressive and you want everybody to make a fair wage, whatever that means to you, or the fight for 15 or a, a minimum living wage, all these terms get thrown around without any actual quantification of what it means to people. Um, you know, that number is tragic, right? 1.6 million people. But if we dig deeper into the data... A lot of those people, so 16 million of them, uh, about a fifth of them, 
are between 16 and 24 years old. So these are your stereotypical, you know, first job at Taco Bell at $16, you know, at 16 years. Um, first working through college, delivering pizza and probably getting some tips under the table and they're making minimum wage, something of that nature. So, you know, the number of people who are making a minimum wage, uh, it says here, people that are paid at the hourly wage, let's go to 25 and older. So if we go everybody 25 and over, there's about 66 million people working on an hourly wage, uh, who are over 25, who probably have some more life expects, uh, life life expenses and about 1.4% of them are working at the minimum wage level. So now we're down to about 700,000 people nationwide who are working at a level of minimum wage. And then this breaks it down more here. Actually, one of the things I was encouraged of, there's almost no discernible difference in race. So white, black, Asian, Hispanic, um, as a percentage of population, the same percentage of the working population versus the actual population, this is about the same percentage is earning around the minimum wage. So there's really no statistical gap there where, you know, Hispanics on average are making minimum wage significantly uh, more often than Caucasians or Asians or whatnot. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and then the other interesting stat here is of the biggest group of people that are making minimum wage, you know, 20 million uh, so there's 20 million part-time workers. They have the highest percentage of people that are paying minimum wage at four and a half percent. That makes sense to me, right? So if you're a part-time worker, maybe you're a seasonal worker, you're picking up a little bit, uh, a few extra shifts at Macy's during the holidays, <clears throat> or you're only working eight to 20 hours a week because you want that part-time job, maybe because you want the benefits or you want something else, or you want to keep your status or whatever the case is, um, you know, I, it's not shocking to me that part-time workers would be at a minimum wage at that starting pay. So there isn't, contrary to what you would probably believe if you watch the news, there isn't these tens of millions of, you know, single moms and working families that are making minimum wage. Now, there might be millions of people that can't make ends meet because of other decisions or where they live or the other cost of goods. But this idea that we have tens of millions of people stuck in dead-end minimum wage jobs... Uh, it's just not true. The data just doesn't doesn't bear that out. And <laughs> I, I really like the comedian Adam Carolla, who's become a little bit more of a social commentator. And he wrote a book. I can't remember what the name of the book was, but it was the one where he talked about uh, Taco Bell. And I don't know if Taco Bell's in the title. Maybe, Chris, you can look this up, the Adam Carolla book about Taco Bell. You know, he talks about when he went for his first job interview when he was 16, he did not get a job at Taco Bell. And it was for a minimum wage job. And what he writes in the book is he writes about, yeah, the reality was I wasn't qualified for that job. At 16 years old, I didn't know that you drag a mop instead of push a mop. Um, what's it's the called name of the book? Not Taco Bell material. Yeah, there you go. Not Taco Bell material. So he talks about in that book how like he wasn't owed a job. Nobody owed him a job at a living wage. He went to go apply for a minimum wage job at Taco Bell and he didn't get it because he didn't know how to do anything. He didn't know how to operate the deep fryer. He didn't know that you pull a mop across the floor to get a better cleaning standard on the floor than pushing a mop. All these things that you learn in minimum wage jobs, but there's not this just epidemic of people who are making minimum wage jobs at 40 years old when they have all types of skills and they're just stuck there. Minimum wage jobs were not, minimum wage jobs were never meant to feed a family of four. Minimum wage jobs is the absolute minimum that people have to pay you so you can garner skills and get some work experience so that you can then move up. Um, you know, it, it almost feels 
to me, it almost feels people crusading, crusading for this higher minimum wage. They, they one, don't get the business economics of running a business, obviously. And two, they just, either because they never worked in a minimum wage job or they're now at a place of, we'll use everybody's favorite buzzword, privilege, uh, you know, being in the Senate and having a great job and tons of staff around them. Uh, they, they just, they don't, they don't get it. They don't get that there's a lot of people that aren't worth more than minimum wage. And that doesn't mean they're not, they don't have value as human beings. That doesn't mean that they can't be something so much greater than a minimum wage employee. But when you start a job, you are not worth a whole lot to the company, right? You just don't know what to do. You don't know what buttons to push. You don't know how to drag the mop. You don't know how to operate the deep fryer. And, and you have to make minimum wage for X amount of time in order to, uh, in, in order to prove that you're worth more money. So I, I feel like a certain cross-section of Americans have it backwards. You don't pay somebody more in hopes that they show up and add more value and know more things and create more value, right? You don't go out and pay somebody $100,000 a year hoping that they grow into the job. Same thing at $10 an hour or $15 an hour. What you do is you employ people for the absolute minimum that you can, and then it's their job as the employee to add value and obtain more skills and become more indispensable to the company so that they can demand a higher wage, right? Uh, you know, there's people that have worked for me where if they came in and asked for a pay raise, I would laugh at them. And those people I probably should have fired uh, or fired earlier. And then there's other people that could come in and demand a higher wage. And, and I wouldn't be able to get out my checkbook fast enough um, because they add so much value to the process, right? And sometimes there's just a lag where it takes a few months or a few years before those skills catch up and then you pay them more and then they obtain more skills and then you pay them more. And there's, there's always some lag. Companies aren't in the business of going out there to pay people as much as they possibly can, businesses exist to turn a profit. And that's just the way it is. Um, so I wanted to go over one more stat here. And this is the average wage index. And I think if you're being genuine about the compensation conversation, because of all the reasons that I just told you, minimum wage jobs need to exist. And that's what's going to happen when you make the minimum, when you have the minimum skills, what I think is actually a little bit more interesting is the average and median amounts of net compensation. So when you look at what is the average compensation and what's the median comp uh, uh, compensation? So average is you take everybody's compensation, you divide by all the worker bees. The median compensation is what's the compensation right dead center of the economic curve, meaning 50% of people uh, make below this number and 50% of people make above this number. So I think this is actually a much more interesting stat to go to to say, okay, what is the what is the average net compensation of an employee? And I think even the average gets a little bit messed up because you do have the, uh, we'll just say Jeff Bezos out there who probably makes X amount of dollars a year and that throws off the average. So let's go to the median. So where 50% of the people are making below that number and 50% of the people are making above that number. And you can see that when they started tracking these numbers back in 1991, the average US employee um, or the, the midline of all U.S. employees was about $15,000. So half the people in America made over that, half the people made under that. Probably a surprising number to a lot of people. Uh, and remember, this takes into account part-time workers, minimum wage workers. Uh, these days, it would take into account gig workers, self-employed workers. But if you come down here, you look from 1991 to 2019, 
the median price point is $34,000, which is 127, 127% uh, increase since 91. Now, obviously, 91 was 30 years ago, so you would expect just from inflation this number to be pretty high. But you can see year over year, every year except for 2009, when the market crashed, Americans are getting about a 2 to well, 5% in the 90s, dropped down to 1%. Uh, again, 2009, the economic crash was the only year that this went down. Now we're 3%, 3%, 1%, 3%, 3%, 2%. You know, uh, now 4%. Americans are getting about a 3 to 4% pay raise per year. So if you want to be a little bit more genuine about the conversation, going to what the average income in America is or the median income, um, I think this is a better number to look at. Now, we could definitely argue that if you're a family of four and mom's making 34000 and dad's making 34000 can you live off of $68,000 a year and raise a family? In California, probably not. In most areas of California. In many other areas of the country, absolutely. You can own a home. I know because I do home loans. You can own a home and you can have a nice little life carved out for you and your family at, you know, both parents working at 68000 69000 a year being this uh, this median income. So I think this is just such a better number to look at if you're trying to have an honest conversation about wages. And then, uh, yeah, here's just more of the national indexing, same, same stat here that I just pulled up somewhere else, so we don't need to look at that. All right, now, this is, this is a little interesting um, because one thing that I always try to have a conversation with is this idea of, all right, if we've got all these problems, if people can't live off a of minimum wage and they need a living wage or we need to raise more taxes or we need people to pay their fair share, pick any political talking point. My question always goes to, okay, well then what's the answer, right? What's the answer? If people aren't paying their fair share and currently uh, if you take the state of California, kind of just a, a employee who's on a W-2 that doesn't have a ton of deductions or a, a business where they can shelter income or they're not a property investor or they're not living off a trust fund. If you kind of just have a, a normal pay stub W-2 employee in California, especially with the new tax laws that are being proposed by Biden and here in California, those people pay a lot of taxes. If you're on a W-2 in California, you know, you're making over $70,000. You start paying a decent chunk of ta taxes. You make over 200, goodness forbid, you make over $400,000. You know, over about 400000 in California between state, federal, excise taxes, licensing fees, property taxes, um, uh, sales tax, uh, car registration, anything that you can come up with that you're paying the government some form of tax. Between the state of California and the federal government, if you're making you know, over $100,000, $200,000, definitely if you're making over $400,000, the government's, they're finding a way to get 50 cents of every dollar that you earn. And so I always ask people, I'm like, you know, again, normally Democrats and progressives that are like, well, we just need these people to pay their fair share. They need to pay more. I'm like, okay, what is the number? What What is the number that would satisfy you? Is it 50%, 60%, 90%? Like, wh when do we get to a number? And And I can tell you, I have never, and I've asked this question hundreds of times, I've never had somebody come back and be like, well, I think 72.5% on all income over a million dollars is fair. I would disagree, but at least that would be a fair place to jump off and have a conversation. And so 
a lot of times when people are railing against this minimum wage, which we've already shown that most of those numbers are a fallacy, railing against this minimum wage, you know, the guy at McDonald's can't even raise a family of four on minimum wage. Well, of course, uh, the guy working at McDonald's can't raise a family of four on minimum wage because the minimum wage job was never meant to be a lifetime profession where you make minimum wage, a.k.a. the minimum, for the rest of your life while you're trying to better yourself and better your family. Like, you you gain more skills. You gain more time in the profession. You, you learn how to operate the deep fryer so you're not making minimum wage anymore you become an assistant manager then you become a manager and then you become a regional manager and then maybe one day you go to McDonald's University and you open your own McDonald's franchise and then you're a millionaire I don't know Um, but minimum wage was never meant to sustain a family of four so then the talking point usually shifts to well uh, maybe it's $15 maybe it's $20 Uh, Americans should at least be able to make a minimum a, a living wage so this is one of the things again I appreciate going back to this uh, uh, USA Facts, is at the very bottom of their minimum wage stats, they say the minimum wage and the living wage are not the same thing. The minimum wage is established by Congress and enforced by the Department of Labor. This is a real tangible thing that we can talk about. And the living wage is a subjective concept calculated by policymakers and advocacy groups that work backwards to calculate a wage to cover the ba- the basic needs and expenses of individuals in a particular area. In cases where minimum wage is less than the estimated living wage, the suggestion is that earnings from a full-time minimum wage job are not enough to support somebody without additional income or aid, meaning, meaning government aid. And it's like, well, yeah, no shit, because the minimum wage was never meant to fully support somebody, and it definitely wasn't meant to fully support somebody and their spouse and their family because the minimum wage, the minimum that a company has to pay is the minimum for a reason. So, um, and by the way, I think this is where so many people start talking past each other, and this, this really this really establishes it right here, right? Because when I'm talking about the minimum wage, I'm talking about what they just said, something established by Congress and, and enforced by the Department of Labor. And then you can go to the Department of Labor and you can look at the actual statistics and you can see what they actually are. Whereas the living wage is kind of just this nebulous concept, right? And that's why the answer is always going to be more, 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 more. So when Chuck Schumer says, oh, we should fight for 15 to have a minimum wage federalized nationwide at $15 an hour, Ocasio-Cortez just comes out and says, well, no, it should be $20 an hour because we want people to have a living wage. And then somebody more progressive than her next year will come out and say, well, no, if we really want to take care of the workers of America, workers unite, you know, sounds very Marxist to me, um, we should pay them $25 an hour. And then somebody else will come out and say like, well, if we could just get these greedy corporations to give up a little bit more, why not pay them $30 an hour? And it's so funny because when I'm talking about minimum wage with people, I always go to the extreme anchor and say, hey, why don't we just make minimum wage $100 an hour? No, just tomorrow. Everybody at Walmart makes $100 an hour. And people will quickly see through the 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 rational or they'll they'll see the the rational pathway and they'll and they'll see through this fallacy of the minimum wage they'll be like oh well wait a minute no you can't do that Scott because if minimum wage was a hundred dollars well then a gallon of milk would be eighty dollars and jeans would be you know a pair of Levi's would be seven hundred dollars and we would we would basically defeat the purpose of making <clears throat> a higher minimum wage because all the cost of goods would just be more expensive. I'm like exactly now take off a zero and make the minimum wage ten dollars instead of a hundred and you have the same exact effect, right? So let, let's just parse this out real quick. Um, or let's go, down, let's go down this rabbit hole. By the way, very few people at Walmart at minimum wage, or very few people that work at Walmart make minimum wage. But let's just, let's just vilify Walmart and say that everybody there makes minimum wage. So 
everybody at Walmart makes minimum wage, which is not a fact, but whatever. Let's just vilify Walmart because everybody loves to pick on Walmart. So all other people make minimum wage, and their products are really uh, cost-effective. So now the federal government comes up and says, you know what, Walmart? We need everybody to make a living wage. Again, they never bother to define that, but let's just arbitrarily call it the fight for 15 because that's a nice uh, alliteration that rolls off the tongue, and it will be picked up by the media and, you know, Political parties are basically just marketing firms, so fifth, you know, fight for 15 sounds really good. Let's make overnight everybody at Walmart have a minimum wage of $15. Okay. So now the person that was making $7.25 an hour is going to make $15 an hour. The problem is the shift manager who used to make $12 an hour is going to say, well, I used to make $5 more than the minimum wage employees. I don't want to just make 15 I want to make 20 and then the 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 shift manager who used to make 17s is now going to want to make 22 and the brand, you know the store manager who used to make 150 grand is going to want to make 200 grand so it's just this inflation of wages so then Walmart turns around and says ah shucks well we had to raise wages i guess we'll just make less profit no that's not going to happen Walmart still has a profit that they want to make one because that's their target that's their job that's their that's the reason a business exists to turn a profit two they have a share they have shareholders to be beholden to and by the way bad things happen to, do, to bad things happen to good companies that don't make money right so you can you can be a really good company who does all the right things and if you're not turning a profit you will not be a company any longer so Walmart's not going to say well the government made us raise wages so we're just going to take less profit no they're just going to raise the cost of goods so now milk goes from 485 a gallon to 625 a gallon and a pair of levi's goes from 27 dollars to 47 dollars or whatever the case may be guess what i make a pretty good living i don't give a shit if milk goes from four dollars and 80 cents to six dollars and 80 cents but guess who does the people making minimum wage so all the minimum wage does is it inflates the cost of labor which then if the business wants to stay in business and turn a profit, increases the cost of goods, and then the only people that suffer are the people that are making minimum wage because I don't really care if milk is a buck or two more expensive. I'm still going to buy the same number of gallons of milk, but people that are only making now $15 an hour in this theoretical fight for 15, they're still going to have to ration themselves and they're still going to have a hard time. So anyway, I digress, soapbox, but let's get back to this living wage. So uh, this is a calculator that MIT did. I think it's really good. Um, uh, it, it shows they've taken kind of all the data, uh, transportation, childcare, food, housing, and they, they break it down by geographical area really, really well. So let's just look at California. What does it take to make a living wage since that's the favorite talking point? Uh, let's go to Los Angeles County, which is where I live. Los Angeles County in Los Angeles. What is a living wage? So if you are one adult, with zero children in order to make a living wage. And what I love about this is they break down typical expenses. So cost of food for one person, cost of medical, cost of housing, uh, transportation, civic, I don't know what that means, uh, other required annual income, and then they then they uh, put in the taxes that you're going to have to pay because everybody has to pay taxes. They come up with the required income. They divide that by, I think there's 2,020 working hours in a 40-hour work week if you work every week of the year, and they come up with $19. So in order to have a living wage, a living wage for a single individual in Los Angeles County, that would be $19 an hour. There is nobody, because it would be political suicide, there is nobody out there on the left or the right 
advocating for a minimum hourly wage in America at the federal level to be $19 an hour, $19.35. Because they know, remember, these political parties, they don't care. They're just marketing firms. They're just marketing for more votes. And they know if they were to market for a minimum wage of $19.35 an hour, that that would be political suicide. But the sob story that we frequently hear is like, well, you know, somebody working that minimum wage job at McDonald's, they don't even have a living wage to pay for them and their family. So if we go here to two adults working with two children, the living wage jumps up to $28 an hour. So again, looking at the expenses of two children, they, they calculate food, transportation, living, medical, whatnot. A, fa a family of two, two adults with two children, so a family of four, sorry, two adults, two children, family of four, the living wage to live in Los Angeles County is $116,000 a year. So both working parents would have to make $28 an hour, which many people in Southern California do, in order to sustain a family of four, right? Two working adults and two children. Now, obviously in California, there's a ton of people, there's millions of people that don't make a dual income of $116,000 a year. So they either have less kids, they have no kids, takes their living wage down to $66,000 a year, which is about 12 bucks an hour, which is kind of like every entry-level job in California is about $12 an hour. So two working adults who say, hey, we're not really in a financial place to have kids yet, they can actually live on $12 an hour here in Southern California, one of the most expensive places to live, and they can make it. Now, are they getting ahead? Are they saving for retirement? Are they financially, you know, um, are they financially well off enough to have kids? No, not yet. But these are the adult decisions we have to make, right? I didn't have kids back when I was making $8 an hour uh, in the military or back when I was making four fifty an hour scooping ice cream because I was not financially ready to have children, right? Or if you can't make this wage, there's a lot of families in California that, that, um, you know, double up on housing to cut expenses or they don't have a car or they work close enough to their work where they can walk, right? So this idea of substituting the word minimum wage with living wage, it's a misnomer in, in so many ways. It's so intellectually disingenuous because one, it, 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 it over quantifies the number of people that are working in minimum wage jobs, which we just showed you, that's bullshit. Two, it never really establishes the self-reliance that people need to have, or it never really discusses the self-reliance that people need to have to obtain more skills, work harder, learn more, make themselves more valuable to the company, you know, add more value to the company so they can make more money. And then even if we wanted to make it a living wage, you can just look at these charts and see that we're never going to get there. You're never going to get to a living wage on minimum wage. It's just never going to happen because it's not financially viable, right? If the lowest paid people among us, aka the people working at Taco Bell or in food services or delivering our pizza, if they were making $15 an hour, $19 an hour, guess what? It then throws this whole calculus off, the typical expenses. Now food gets more expensive. Transportation gets more expensive. Everything gets more expensive. And then guess what? There's going to be more social safety nets because more people are, uh, less people are employed. More people are unemployment. means taxes are going to go up. So it's just this vicious cycle of the government trying to help 
or more accurately, trying to win votes through marketing ploys and through taxation and redistribution of income. And it never really solves the problem, right? Plug in this calculator. Look at how just moronic the talking points actually are. And that's my thought on that. All right, more drinking, more cigars, more anger. All right, last but not least. Biden administration announces it intends to ban menthol cigarettes and and flavored cigars. Well, the first thing is, as a cigar smoker, I would argue that every cigar has a flavor, even this very dark Yamasa Valley Davidoff I'm smoking. It's a really strong, pungent flavor, but it's a flavor nonetheless. Uh, Luckily, that's not what they're talking about in this article. What they're talking about is they're talking about flavored tobacco, um, which include menthol cigarettes. Uh, they they really started this crusade against the uh, the Juul uh, fruit flavors. So Juul's the e-cigarette or the the vaping pens. You know they had uh, I tried a couple of them actually because I was just fascinated by it. Had some uh, really fascinating flavors: watermelon and mango. I think the mango one was the big seller for Juul. Um, and who knows? Maybe these companies are horribly evil, and the reason they created those is they wanted to hook fourteen and fifteen year old kids onto smoking. And uh, I I wouldn't put that past them because we know how nefarious tobacco companies have been. Uh, But really, do we have to do we have to ban menthol cigars and flavored flavored cigar or menthol cigarettes and flavored cigars? It just feels like, again, an overreach from the government, the nanny state. Right. Uh, I remember in the 80s when I was growing up, uh, Joe Joe Camel, like the cool camel. He was the, the big advertising piece for cigarettes. And then it was like, nope. Too many young people are smoking, so we have to ban any cartoon that promotes a cigarette. All right, fine. And then they banned cigarette commercials on TV, so you can't advertise tobacco or cigarettes on TV, or I don't think you can uh, advertise them on radio anymore as of the late 80s, early 90s. And that was the thing that was supposed to stop all children from smoking because if we didn't have cartoon characters pushing um pushing smoking and we didn't have them on the TV and it wasn't part of the social zeitgeist, then people just wouldn't smoke cigars, uh, wouldn't smoke cigarettes. And then it just keeps going and they've got to pass more laws and more laws and more laws and more laws. And, you know, now the, uh, the big push is, well, menthol cigarettes are, uh, killing black lives. Cause I don't, I don't know why this is culturally, but an overwhelming majority of menthol, uh, cigarettes are smoked by the black community. Uh, that was true when I was in the army with about 50% white and 50% black soldiers. Uh, I was reading some stats on this that something like 87% of youth smokers who are minorities start with menthol cigarettes or 71% um, of youth smokers uh, of minority groups start with menthol cigarettes. So I, I get it. I get that the government wants to do something good, right? They, they, they see a problem and the government wants to step in and fix it with a law. And we, we've got to pass a law. We've got to do something. Because when you're a marketing firm, uh, and, and again, these political parties are just big marketing firms. When you're a marketing firm, you have to constantly be showing people that you're doing something. Doesn't matter what that something is. Just it has to have a, it has to have a good rationale or you have to be trying to have some good outcome. And we've got to do something. We've got to do something. We've got to do something. We've got to do more. We've got to pass more laws. We've got to outlaw more things. We've got to save more people from themselves. But here's the problem, and I want you to go back to the tragic death of Eric Garner. Eric Garner, and I hate even looking at this picture because, you know, 
I don't have all the facts. I wasn't there. I wasn't the police officer there, although I've seen the video many times. Eric Garner is the individual in New York who was in and out of trouble with the law. So, by the way, you should not be in and out of trouble with the law because eventually one of these interactions is going to end poorly for the person who is interacting frequently with the law, and that's just a sad reality of life. But what he got, um, what he got approached for on the street before he got choked out, which ended up leading to his death, uh, what he got approached for was selling individual cigarettes. And if you've never lived in New York or you've never visited New York or you don't have a lot of friends that smoke heavily, you won't, you won't understand this. So let me explain it to you. New York has by far, although California is a close second, by far the highest taxes on cigarettes. So they have something like 100% tax on cigarettes. So uh, like a six, $6, I think it says in this article actually, uh, yeah, New York City has a total of nearly six dollars uh, a pack of cigarettes, plus their normal nine nine percent sales tax. So, if a pack of cigarettes should retail for seven bucks, you add your six dollar tax to it. Now it's thirteen dollars. Now you pay nine cent or nine percent of tax on top of that. So now you're looking at like fifteen bucks for a pack of cigarettes that should be seven eight dollars. So what happens is right across the border in Virginia and other bordering states, they don't have these taxes, and so fraudulent well, not fraudulent, um, trafficked cigarettes in New York is a really big problem. Like people will come in with, and people go to jail for decades for this shit. Um, people will come in with semi-trucks full of cigarettes and cartons of cigarettes and tobacco products that are bought in New York and they'll either sell them on the street or they'll sell them one cigarette at a time or they'll have somebody who's really good at Photoshop like Chris is, not that he's ever done this, of course, but somebody that's good with Photoshop like Chris make the fake New York State tag sticker that goes on the uh, cigarette package and then they'll put fake stickers on them so they can sell them in, uh, in mini marts and, uh, and liquor stores. So what Eric Garner was known for, his little run-in with the laws and the way that they were constantly aggressing him was because he was... He, he, would, he would make extra money selling individual cigarettes on the side. Like outside of this beauty shop, he would sit there with a couple packs of smokes in his pocket and everybody knew you could go up to him and you could buy smoke for, you know, whatever, a buck or 50 cents or whatever it is he needed to do to turn a profit. Well, the reason that he even had that job doing something that the state deemed illegal is because the state had this ridiculous law and this ridiculous tax on cigarettes because, again, they're trying to save people from themselves and so you got to pass more laws, you got to pass more taxes. And what that did was it created a criminal out of somebody who like just want to make a few bucks selling cigarettes. And especially in an environment where most of the country is leaning towards uh, legalizing weed, that's, that's going to be the fact in every state here very shortly, probably the next election cycle or two. Uh, some states are starting to uh, legalize hallucinogenics, mushrooms, I think, was it was it Oregon that just uh, passed? Yeah, what? Oregon. Oregon, yeah. So now Oregon, you can eat mushrooms. You know, heroin's probably next. The fact that we're going that direction in, in one kind of social policy and in the other social policy, we're outlawing tobacco and flavored cigarettes and flavored cigars. Like Reason Magazine, which I really like Reason Magazine, they're a very like, libertarian-minded article. They said, you know, it wasn't just the chokehold that killed Eric Gardner. His death resulted from a violent confrontation that should have never happened. And I think that's the point that I'm trying to get to with these random laws and bans and taxes is that 
when the government is so aggressive in the laws that they're passing to protect us from ourselves and the taxes that they're passing to fund their pet project or, you know, vilify a particular product like tobacco, what you're really doing is you're turning more and more people into criminals. Like what Eric Garner did that day selling cigarettes illegally, yes, it was against the law. I would prefer people follow the law. But if you have an unjust law and an unjust tax that doesn't make any sense, and then you just turn some dude who wants to make a few bucks into a felon, and then the police have an excuse to harass now the person who's a felon, you're just setting up a recipe for disaster, right? And do you really think people who really enjoy smoking flavored cigarettes and flavored cigars aren't going to find a way to circumvent the system? Of course they are. They're going to invent something new that's not called flavored. It's called something else. It's called a widget cigarette, right? Or they're going to start making them illegally. Or some entrepreneurial individual is going to go buy a warehouse full of menthol cigarettes right before the ban goes into effect. And then he's going to start selling them illegally, right? And so I just, I want people to be conscious when they see these laws and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, kids smoke menthol cigarettes. I guess we should get rid of menthol cigarettes. Just remember that every law that you pass, everything that you outlaw or every tax that you pass, because the government's the only per, the only debt collector that can use physical force and, and, and imprisonment to collect a debt, which is kind of gross, but that's a whole different podcast. Every time you pass a tax or a law, you're giving the government more authority to infringe in your rights, and you're giving the government more authority to call you a criminal. And when that happens... They can use force, and when the government or the police department is allowed to use force, a certain percentage of times, things go horribly wrong, right? Whether it's this case or others that have been in the news cycle recently. So I just want people to think through, like, what are the second-order effects? What are the unintended consequences? And maybe, maybe we should have more education, public funding around helping the youth of America not smoke, but... Are we really going to save people from smoking if we just eliminate flavored cigarettes? Because I remember in the 80s and 90s, the thing that was going to eliminate all the youth of America smoking was getting rid of Joe Camel and cartoon characters being able to advertise cigarettes. And then it was getting rid of this. And then it was getting rid of flavored you know, e-cigarettes. And now it's getting rid of all flavored tobacco. Like, it's got to stop somewhere, right? Because eventually, if you just keep passing more laws and more taxes— Eventually, a bigger and bigger percentage of the country becomes stormtroopers because you have to have people to enforce all these laws. And then you just have a bigger percentage of the people who are accidentally becoming felons. And that's a really bad precedent. And that's a really bad future when you have a growing percentage of the population becoming stormtroopers for the government, whether they're enforcing laws or enforcing taxes, and a bigger and bigger percentage of the populace that is accidentally or knowingly, because they don't agree with the policy, breaking the law. It's just real dangerous. So those are my thoughts for today. Uh, if you watched, I really appreciate it. Do all those things you're supposed to do, right? Subscribe, hit the little notification button, leave a comment. I know that really helps. If you really watch this whole thing, I, it really means a lot to me. And um, let me know, like find me on Facebook or leave a comment here so I know people are watching because it's fun to talk through these things, but it's also fun to know that somebody's listening. All right, love you guys lots. Scott Groves on the Edge Podcast.